City, City Limits. Limits. Brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band, if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City Limits. Okay, here they are. I said as we went to air that because I'm looking for my reading glasses and I finally found them under a bit of paper. Surprise, surprise. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's 9.01, it's City Limits, it's the fourth Wednesday of the month and today... Uh, well, first in the studio we've got Karina, we've got Zeb, I'm Kevin Healy, um, we've got all of us here, um, and uh, and Karina, you've got a message you're going to read shortly, but um, I just to tell people what's on the show today, we're going to talk to Helen Vandenberg first up, who um, of course is a great community activist, and particularly she's concerned about pollution in the western suburbs, she's going to talk to us about the Meribanong River flooding and um, various causes for it, and the issue of the Flemington Racecourse protecting itself for the rich next week while mm. mm-hmm. everyone else gets flooded. Um, and um, then later in the show, we're going to talk to David Spratt, the um, author, of course, of uh, of uh, whatever the book was called. I've forgotten its name now, but it was about climate change about 10 years ago where he warned we had to act urgently and we certainly haven't taken the, the warning. Um, and uh, David's going to talk to us about issues to do with climate, including the fact that arising out of uh, Russia cutting off gas for Europe, the world's great, wonderful behemoth uh, resource giants have all come, have all decided they can now extract more and uh, and sell more gas and coal and uh, keep polluting the world. So we're going to talk to David about that issue, among others, to do with climate issues. So there we are, and uh, I'm going to pour some tea. Everyone else want a cup of tea? No, you've already got a coffee there. I'm I'm happy to be double parked, Uh, like always, Gavin. Are you okay? (laughs) And I need a tea. Oh, Zed needs a tea. The tea knocked the microphone there. That's right. (laughs) I said people know we're drinking out of genuine cups, don't they? All genuine mugs. Um, As we belt away now. Here you are, Zeb. You reach over there and grab. Maybe while Kevin's passing that over, I'll announce. Yes, you can, and there's your cup. That you You do have to pass it loudly. Cheers. No, you're not going to. You're not going to hopefully knock over either the coffee or the tea and have a blend or something. I'm not going to. I'm not going to knock over an announcement while you're pouring either. (laughs) Um, I just wanted to very quickly say uh, that the Victorian Forest Alliance is campaigning for the protection of native forests. in the lead up to the state election and if you're a City Limits listener and that's in your interests, they have heaps of events, um, you know, leafleting and then a dinner in Northcote tonight, uh, pub night and postery in Brunswick on Friday, uh, leafleting at Paran Station tomorrow. So just head to victorianforestalliance.org.au, suss out their events page, I'm sure they're doing something near you. Yeah, that's good. Okay, and that's well, good luck to them all. Mm. And also, of course, we mentioned last week that we said we'd repeat this week, and and indeed, in case we forget at the end, we'll do it early. Uh, don't forget the rally tomorrow. Rally that's for right. public and social housing tenants. Um, it's in um, Mooney Ponds. It's that's where the Minister for Housing's office is. It's twenty eight Shute S H U T E R Street. 
Um, I hope it doesn't mean anything else to do with shooting people. But anyway, <laughs> Shooter Street, Mooney Ponds. And uh, that's at 12.30 tomorrow, 12.30 to 1.30. Um, and and the, the groups involved in it are the Public Housing Tenants Victoria, Public Housing Everybody's Business, Spotlight on the Public Housing Renewal Program, Richmond Estate Action Group, Save Public Housing Collective, Save Barack Beacon, um, Save Ascot Vale Estate and Geelong Housing Action Group. So... Um, calling themselves Public Housing Frontline, and that's tomorrow. Rally for public and social housing tenants, repair our homes, safety for all residents, mould is not okay, justice and human rights for all, and of course, lots more public housing. And last night we saw the government announce a million houses over X number of years, but all affordable stuff, according to them. And what's that mean? And uh, there was no mention any of those would be available as public housing at all. Some might be social housing or whatever. Exactly. But they called it affordable, and I thought, well, affordable mm. means what? And a lot of affordability now depends on government giving, you know, providing lots of finance. So all that money last night mentioned for housing over the next few years could well have gone straight into public housing, I would have thought, and done a much better job. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And we were f- hoping that maybe the stage three tax cuts wouldn't go through, but mm. alas, um, so yeah. Well, they haven't yet been squashed, but they don't come into twenty twenty four. So I guess we there's have still time. time to... but, yeah, let's let's hope. But I yeah. mean, that's right. The, the sooner they denounce them, the better. Yes, well, I would have thought. Mm. Um, look, interesting item. I think in the last couple of weeks, um, the um, because uh, the the bloke up in um, up in, in in the northern in not in northern territory, the bloke in the ACT, um, Senator Pocock, ex rugby player, uh, he's playing the same game as a lot of uh, independents play in places like Tasmania over the years. With a bloke called Haradine years ago, who was a real arch right wing um, senator, uh, in um, he's playing the same game, saying, "Look, he's prepared to back the government's industrial laws, and his vote might be critical to it in the Senate." Uh, if the government wipes the ACT's housing bill, because the ACT has somehow whipped up a... and it's, I think it came in before they got their own government, so it does go back a fair way, but there's a fairly large debt the ACT has in terms of housing, and he wants that wiped by the federal government in return. And I think, you know, we're reaching that awful stage again where you're seeing people wanting to trade off something that has nothing to do with what the actual bill's mm. about. If he supports the industrial relations stuff, then support it. Mm. If, don't say, I won't support it if you don't do this. Um, that seems to me to be quite, in many ways, uh, un- unreasonable. Um, I just thought I'd mention that because it seems to have come back on the agenda. One positive, though, in the government, uh, what the government is doing, um, because the previous government, and we've talked about this before, how the previous government used the big world accounting firms you know, and paid millions to them for work that the public service should have been doing. And, um, in fact, they spent more than $2 billion, um, to these people, KPMG and all those lots, um, Ernst & Young, PricewaterhouseCooper, Deloitte's, all that lot, um, now, the current Minister for, for Finance and Public Service, Katie Gallagher, she is in fact cutting back on that and she's in fact promising, and in fact not promising, but planning to appoint heaps more public servants to do this work and to cut back dramatically on the amount um, of money spent on, on consultants. And in fact, um, spending on new contracts um, last year was up 40% on the year prior and up from less than $400 million a year when the coalition came to power to, to this $2 billion. Um, 
and the government reckons it's going to save 3.1 billion over the next four years by bringing much more of it in house and not giving these people all that money. So that I think is quite a positive coming out of this because we've complained about that a fair bit on this program. Mm-hmm. Anyway, anyone else got any items before we go to Helen Vandenberg? Um, there was one that I saw um, that Environment Victoria, I'm pretty sure, um, has launched a Supreme Court case involving the brown coal-fired power stations in the Trove Valley. And it's about um, they are arguing that the 2021 decision by the EPA not to impose greenhouse gas emission limits on the power stations was a failure to consider the effects of climate change. Um, so just it'll be interesting to keep an eye on how that case evolves and, and what the Supreme Court Justice um, ends up deciding. Um, mm. But, yeah... Interesting, seeing um, how things go on the on the highest level of our courts. That's right. Well, the high court's been making making it's been a bit like the American Supreme Court recently. It's been making some pretty awful decisions, and I think it comes down to the fact that it was pretty heavily stacked by the previous government. But uh, we have just had a new judge appointed by this government going onto the high court bench, and see what sort of difference that makes as well. Um, we'll find out. Uh, just one other matter before we do go to Helen. Um, this is quite concerning because I think of how we just said about how the government's doing a good... We said a bad thing in terms of housing, a good thing in terms of consultants, <laughs> a bad thing in terms that Richard Miles could well be Richard Dutton um, or Peter Miles. I mean, he, he's mouthing exactly what Dutton was saying about China and, and, and we need for war, the need to build up and, and to spend trillions on the merchants of death. And now the government is saying it wants to begin urgently manufacturing its own missiles, saying the war in Ukraine has demonstrated the need for supplies to be available swiftly and not dependent on imports, etc. So we're even getting more into the merchants of death industry, which is quite a pity. Mm-hmm. Uh, look, we'll take a break, come back, and we'll talk to Helen Vandenberg about floods in the Maribyrnong. Sounds good. Stay tuned in to 3CR Community Radio. Love and Man by Brad Giddens, and we're back on air with Helen Vandenberg to talk about the recent flooding. Hi, Helen, are you there? I am. 
Yeah, Helen, um, Meribolong Flood is in towards the Tillin Flood, obviously, but it's about to, about to recede, hopefully. But uh, there's been a lot of talk about the the um, levy at the Flemington Racecourse. Um, now, I'm sure that wouldn't have prevented what happened because it was such a severe flood, but could it have made it a little better? Oh, absolutely. Downstream of... Um, I'm getting a feedback. Are you getting feedback? I uh, know, but sometimes there's one line here that people seem to get it, so I hope it's not a nuisance for you. If it's really a okay. nuisance, we can try another line. No, it's all right. Um, the Flemington Race Wall denies the river the opportunity to spread out over one and a quarter million cubic metres uh, of flood storage, right? That would have been a huge improvement for the people in Kensington and downstream. For those in the Mooney Valley area around near Fairburn Park where it flooded, like in Wood Street, it wouldn't have made any difference. Um and the depth of water in Kensington would have been much, much lower. For the peep, for the 46 units in Riverview and Avondale Heights, they're actually in the floodplain. So how VCAT ever came to the decision that that was a good location is absolutely outrageous. Um, I mean, in the 1974 flood the um, single lane bridge that we used to have at Canning Street there went underwater, right? So um, when the new road was put through to connect Avondale Heights and Maribyrnong, the bridge came up much higher. And when you drove over that bridge, you look down on those last three or four streets. It's been clear ever since the the initial part of Riverview, which was up high on the hill, was safe. But when those other streets went in, I simply couldn't believe that anybody had been that stupid. I mean, those people will flood. Now, the Maribyrnong only floods about once in every 50 years, right? That's two generations, so people forget. If you've been in the area, you know what the river does. And the people who do know what the river does, the residents, put in objections. We, We make the obvious scientifically based facts that rivers flood every now and again and it's pretty dramatic and you don't occupy the floodplain. Yeah, well, now, over on the Maribyrnong side of the river in 74, there was a vegetable garden where some of those houses are, right, the newer ones. Mm-hmm. Now, they're supposed to have been built above uh, the one-in-100-year flood line, but the point is under climate change... Under intense events, we don't know what the rivers are going to do. Now, though, and some people in, in the Mooney Valley, for instance, weren't expecting the flood because we weren't getting much local rain. But by 10 to 5 on Thursday afternoon, the, the if you look at the flow records for what was the river doing in Jackson's and Deep Creek at that time. From 10 to 5 on, they went straight up until 9 o'clock at night. So by 9 o'clock at night, it was crystal clear on Melbourne Water's data that that we were going to hit a major flood level. Now, it's not Melbourne Water's responsibility to make, to make the call, which I think is stupid. The bomb clearly... That's the, just below, the just below that, that's the Bureau of Meteorology. Kellen, just to, just to clarify that, that's oh, the, the Bureau of Meteorology. Bureau of Meteorology. Yeah. Okay. 
Yep. They are responsible for, for making declarations. Now, they failed in New South Wales in the Lismore floods. They failed in Tasmania and they failed in Victoria. Certainly in the Maribyrnong area. There was the data collected by Melbourne Water and it shows in the flow gauges that, that between 5 and 9 o'clock it's clear we're in for a huge flood. So do we need to change the regulations, however they are, so that it's, the, it's, the, it's Melbourne Water that it makes these announcements and can warn people? I just think they better work it out and if the bomb's going to be responsible for it, they better listen to Melbourne Water a bit closer. Yeah, and I mean Melbourne Water was not responsible for the flood wall. Mary Delahunty excluded. She, I mean, this is absolutely astonishing, and we were furious at the time. She decided that uh, Melbourne Water could not be the referral authority on the matter. Mm. Now, for heaven's sakes, why would you take the Water Corporation responsible for it out of the? out of the equation. Take that as rhetorical, Helen, as usual. But um, there was an item this morning on the news that some houses, people have been warned about going back because asbestos has been exposed. And and as the water does recede, and of course we know the Meribyrnong is a tidal river, which probably doesn't help either when it's flooding, um, that, I presume a lot of pollution is going to end up in the bay as the, as the, um, the flood gets back to the sea. Well, of course, where else can it go? I mean, yeah. we've already heard from people around St Kilda and, and that site. I mean, the the current goes from west to east, so everything we spew into the bay goes to the east. And it, there was a photo in the age, I think, of, of this cloudy, brown cloudy silt. But, I mean, um, it's such a pity that it just gets washed into the bay because the silt that comes down in the river, especially from the upper part, is good quality soil it should be able to deposit that on the floodplains and replenish them but we crazily go and build on them or we put race courses on them and apparently racing's more important than people's homes sounds like it well in fact going back to 2007 when i remember i can recall at the time i'm sure you can a lot of people objected saying this would happen in fact but when that levy was proposed and it was Look, proposed it was proposed on the grounds that it would stop Flemington ever being washed out in terms of cup week so it was all about one week of the year and there was an attempt to have a Queensland professor Colin Apelt uh, do an assessment but Rob Hulls um, then the planning minister rejected it and just approved the, the levy at the time I think I've got a feeling he no, was also it, it's Mary Delahunty that was the minister at the time uh, well, I'm going on a story in The Age that says it was Hulls who... They said that Thwaites was the water minister and Hulls was the planning minister. Well, pe- You might be right. I, mean, I'll t- I think you, you're more reliable, I think, than most I people. I don't know. Well, look, Kevin, <laughs> I, I was talking to an ex-Maribyrnong councillor and that person was adamant that it was Mary Delahunt. Oh, well. The point is the planning minister has no right to make exceptions for a racing... One a racing carnival that goes for a week against the homes, the heartache caused here, and now additionally the pollution. And don't forget, our river has PFAS in it donated by Melbourne Water for over 50... Um, Melbourne Airport for 50 years. So our, it, it's just atrocious. The whole fiasco would have been far less serious if planning ministers and VCAT did their jobs properly and listened to the science... Floodplains are there for a reason. You can't prevent floods and 
you don't build on floodplains. Mm. And if you do, then it's going to be very expensive for the taxpayer when class actions roll out. When you say you can't prevent floods, nonetheless, we're in a situation now where it seems they're going to be recurring much more regularly, aren't they not? Well, that's why we have to have a more rational approach in planning. Planning in, planning in the state is just... Look, we, we go stretching the city out and without transport when we could compact it in smaller areas and build apartments and create open space. We take floodplains for living on when that's... You, you, I, I think planning's a schmozzle, and I've thought that for decades, right? We don't even have decent water-sensitive urban designs. Planners are able to say, we're going to develop this area and we'll just rush the water into the creeks. Well, now there's some attempt to hold some of the stormwater back. But there's decades... There's Decades and decades of bad planning where we are rushing water into the creeks quicker than it used to come. So we've completely upset the natural cycle. Normally, if you have a big backyard, a lot of the rain went into the soil and then it shot into the groundwater and the groundwater keeps our creeks flowing in the dry times, right? It's just that people don't understand water and how to manage it well. So if you're going to build on floodplains, if you're going to rush everything into the creek instead of giving it a slow pass there, you're just heading for more and more disasters. And climate change has just made the whole matter far more complex and it's going to be very costly rectifying the generations of errors that planners have made over the time, in, in particularly in Greater Melbourne. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and they didn't even have the decency to leave wide areas need, near creeks so that people could have open space. And, I mean, the floodplain on Steel Creek was sold by the Kennett government in 1991. Parks, Melbourne Water and Parks Victoria were forced to sell off a part of the floodplain of Steel Creek, right? Now... Um, Fortunately, our local rainfall was low during the last flood, so our creek wasn't in flood. But the day will come when Jackson's and Deep Creek and Riddles Creek and the Maribyrnong and Steel Creek and all the local creeks will be having a flood at the same time, and who knows what's going to happen then. Yes, and Helen, I was just wondering, have you seen any modelling of um, what sea level rise will do to the Maribyrnong? Um since it is <laughs> depends which scenario you take, doesn't it? Yes. Yeah. I mean, that's the other serious issue. What are we going to do about that? I mean, Mooney Valley Council has now lost a lot of uh, infrastructure for sporting facilities, right? But and that's costly too. We need to sit down and very coolly look at these are the scenarios. What has to change so that it's not a future disaster? Nothing's going to be cheap and nothing's going to be easy, but the more rational and long-term approach we take to it, the better off we'll be. Well, I don't think we've got a lot of time to work all this out in any hour. Mm. There's, of course, all the places that are flooded now that are on the floodplains that, you know, where they shouldn't be, but 
Can we do anything about that or we just have to live with it? Or they have to live with it, I guess. Well, how are they going to live with it? Who's going to insure them? You don't abandon mm. people because planners made a decision to stick them in a dangerous spot. You have to help there. You can't turn mm. your back. We can't turn our back on those people. Good. Yeah. I mean, that's just inhumane to do that. And I mean, I'm sick of hearing about the great Australian character and how resilient we are. This is just being a, a decent human being. I mean, that's normal all around the world. People help one another. <laughs> yes. I was thinking that yesterday when someone talked about how Australians all help each other. I think it might have been the budget last night, was it? But I thought, well, yeah. it happens everywhere. I mean, that's right. Why are we it's, special? It's a human characteristic. <laughs> we, we have made a mess of planning and we have to sit down and work out what to do. And I'm sure there's enough creativity and good sense and good engineers and good scientists around to help us. Helen, how would you suggest for listeners to get... Uh, get themselves uh, more aware about water happenings? Because oftentimes, like with this uh, flood wall, it's not happening directly in people's surrounds or next to their house, but it does affect them downstream or upstream or in regards well, to the waterways. Well, we did everything. We How? did everything we could. We, exactly. we protested at the time. Look, I guess if you're getting to when people sell their houses, I thought it was well known that that area flooded. But possibly, mm. look, there, there has to be, it has to be into the local planning scheme, right? But th- this is the reality. People don't, people take nature for granted, mm. right? They don't engage with understanding nature. They're just like a river to walk along and they're not thinking about it. The water illiteracy in this community is extremely, well, it's it, right across Victoria. I would say water literacy is very poor. People would, people are um, not expecting a flood when you've had nothing but rain for months. That's extraordinary. Uh, people don't seem to know there's a floodplain. Well, any, I mean, what is happening when people don't understand these things? Mm. And linked. Mm. Possibly also to those sell-offs in the first place. Once, once an area that should be yeah, but for the, the environment and public course, space is is privatised. I'm, yeah, I'm talking well, about the Steel Creek all, one. We've all we've all been saying this privatisation um, is not going to work, and it hasn't. You can see that in the energy sector, and the corporatisation of Melbourne Water hasn't helped because now they have to be, you know. Contribute. They are the only cash cow the government's got, whereas before they had the gas and fuel and the SEC and Melbourne Water giving them a billion dollars in revenue every year. And so money that's been collected for work on waterways uh, hasn't always been spent on waterways. And we've had this argument with John Swates in the past. There's good social policy to cross-subsidise. Well, not when you're letting the, the rivers and the creeks get worse. Mm. But anyhow, there's a whole lot of education that needs to happen in the community. And the community has to be responsible and listen and take the advice. How can the average Joe in the West educate themselves, join Friends of Steel Creek? Well, if they joined their local groups, they'd be better off. That's right. But, you know, that's not everybody's cup of tea. Mm. And besides that, people people naively believe uh, when they're moving into a new area that they suddenly think it's going to be their ideal place to leave. Uh, they think the planners have taken everything into consideration. And they haven't. 
haven't been allowed to. Melbourne Water has been barred from having a, a proper input on the flood wall. Mm. Uh, and VCAT overruled the um, rejection of the Riverview Estate um, development. Mm. Yeah. Your point also, Helen, about planning being a shambles, one of the problems is that every new government that comes in has develops mm. a new planning scheme. It, it ditches, yeah, well, ditches, don't the developers love that? And ditches I the mean, previous look at one, it, Kevin. Yeah. We in the West are a groundwater dependent system, which means that in a lot of the time we wouldn't have a creek flowing if it wasn't being fed by the groundwater. Mm. To have groundwater to feed into your creeks and your river, you have to have rain going into the soil, right? Now, if you make your block sizes as small as we have for the developers' um, healthy profits, and you don't create backyards, where's the infiltration? You may as well say that all the land that soaked up the rain around Sunbury has just had a roof put over it and all the water's been rushed into Jackson's Creek. Mm. Right? So that makes your flood worse. So developers' greed uh, has contributed to this being worse. But you cannot stop a river from flooding. It's the natural process of regenerating its floodplains and they're the breeding grounds for our water birds and our fish and our frogs. We don't have many fish, frogs and water birds left because we've lost floodplains and there's nowhere safe. Because we've changed creeks from the little narrow things they were into spoon drains and we rush the water down, there's no homes for platypus, mm. right? Mm. So the, the consequences, the cumulative impacts of bad planning plans and the expense it is going to create for both the government and the people harmed is just something we're going to have to learn to deal with. We've also got last night's budget, which has promised all these houses over the next few years, but the question is where are they going to go? Um, well, the point the... is we have to consolidate more in the suburbs. I mean... Urban growth and and just putting a roof over that land and rushing the water into the creeks not helping either in a flood. Mm. But if you yeah. keep out of the flood plain, if you keep off the flood plains, and I mean the other thing is that in the dry time our creeks may not flow because we're not getting groundwater anymore, so we've got nothing to feed into them. And when we have dry winters, it's groundwater that keeps the the creeks going. We run the risk of having dry creek beds in the future because we haven't got groundwater to feed the creeks in the winter. Yeah, we're going to have this to move on, unfortunately. Well, also, just rising out of that... I haven't got any good news for you. No, 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 but... Well, to make it even worse, I mean, developers are saying because of this government promise of all these houses, we need to speed up the approval processes and cut the red and green tape and so they can get approvals without you know, too much interference by terrible authorities. So it, 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 it could look even worse. Well, do you remember that article in The Age um, time last year? I think it was RMIT pointed out that the houses are so close together the air conditioners don't get enough um, That's right, yes. air circulation so they can't cool them down. Now, we've been promised 500,000 trees to help cool and green the West. That's a health... That, that's a requirement. Where they're going to get the water from to keep them alive is an interesting question. And on top of that, that's, that's a good way of improving the livability in those suburbs. 
But the point is we cannot keep having this illusion that there's a block for everybody because the blocks that are around now are part of the the block size is part of the problem, and and also the land they're going over. So you get you're getting those grasslands destroyed and all that. Yeah, so, yeah, and we're not getting the groundwater infiltration, which is going to be of a huge impact later on. So we're going to have to consolidate. We are going to have to create, like Europe has done. People take for granted that they can live in an apartment because they have a pleasant environment to walk around in in their area, plus they have access to good-sized parks. You know, it's just why do we have to spread out in this ugly fashion and we're only making Melbourne less livable? Yeah, that's that's not a bad note to finish on, actually. There's almost a positive in there somewhere. Um, Helen, we've got oh, to go because we've got to, got, to get to our next, <laughs> got to get to our next guest. But look, thanks for your time this morning. There's an item about clean away I wanted to raise, but we won't get to it. But they're in trouble up in Queensland with more pollution, you'll be pleased to hear. So oh. um, anyway, we'll, we'll come to that again. Okay, thanks, Okay, Thanks, Helen. Thanks, Helen Vandenberg there, who I think people can tell is a great community activist involved with all these issues. Uh, We're going to take a break, come back, and we're going to have a yarn to uh, David Spratt about, uh, again, about climate change. So we're really cheering people up this morning, no end. Australia's most iconic bike riding holiday, the Great Vic Bike Ride, is on from Saturday 26th of November to Sunday 4th of December. This rolling bike festival will have you pedalling along the beautiful Great Ocean Road, through the Otways and Golden Plains. Tickets include all meals, a camping spot, luggage transfers, daily entertainment and more. Sign up at www.greatvic.com.au Use promo code 3CR to get 10% off. Great Vic Bike Ride, a 3CR supporter. I'm Sonia Hammer of PX Fano. Join me and our Pacifica family as we talk about all things Pacifica for our queer Pacifica community. From news and information to covering all the arts and culture and events of our community for our community. PX Fano, the voice of Queer Pacifica for Australia and the world, every Saturday afternoon, 1.30 to 2 o'clock, only on 3CR, 855 AM. Community Radio. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live. Okay, back on air and we have David Spratt on the line with us now. Hi, David. How are you going? Good morning. Good morning. Morning, David. And uh, David, just recently I heard an interview with Noam Chomsky, the American um, American uh, academic, uh, who, talking about the invasion of Ukraine, he said one of the impacts of it is clearly that with the so-called gas crisis in Europe, uh, the big behemoth 
resource giants are using it to increase their production, to increase polluting, and he was saying, in fact, they could be leading us to virtually the end of the planet as we know it. Uh, a comment on that? Uh, look, Ukraine and fossil fuels uh, is a really complex issue. I was just thinking about it. I mean, I guess if you start... Um, Russia relies principally on fossil fuels for its export income. I had a look yesterday, and um, since the war started in February, Russia has made 180 billion euros out of fossil fuel exports, which is what's paying mm. for the war. So I, I guess that's the, the, the first point, as far as your fossil, a fossil fuel paid war. Um, uh, um, and, and it's costing a lot of money that could be going into, into do, to dealing with climate issues. I mean, I saw one estimate that um, uh, if you look at the human cost and the economic cost, the, um, the war is costing about $1.8 trillion a month. That's in you know, human, environmental, economic costs. Now, that's, that's bigger than the Australian economy for the year. So the destruction that's been wrought, that is the cost of the war in, in this sense, is greater than eight years' worth of Australian production so far. And, of course, that's money that won't go into, in, into the, the, the climate um, transformation. So, I mean, I think that's, that's a big story that it's, you know, it's a huge political um, distraction. Obviously, I mean, the other issue is that um, the gas, Russia shutting off uh, gas supplies to Europe and Europe deciding to... Russian gas has put up, pushed up energy prices a huge amount. That's reverberated around the world here. I mean, we see stories from last night in the budget that they expect electricity and gas prices to go up another 50% in the next 18 months to two years in Australia. So those who are fossil fuel producers are making a huge amount of money out of the war, but just by the fact the price has been pushed up so high. Yeah, I was going to come to that point, though, about the budget last night saying, you know, we expect massive increases in electricity um, and energy prices. Now, can't the government do something about that? I mean, shouldn't the government be putting some controls on it? Well, well I mean, I guess the, the first point is that we are the second largest exporter of, of gas in the world uh, at the moment, um, courtesy of decisions of mainly a Labor government, the Gillard government, to uh, sign away the Northwest Shelf without charging uh, uh, anything for it effectively, with very poor royalties compared to, uh, to, to places like uh, Scandinavia and Norway. Um, uh, and then we decided to have this thing we call world parity pricing, um, where the cost of gas in Australia is set at the world price which we didn't have to do. I mean, we could simply say, uh, or mandate, um, that uh, enough gas be reserved in Australia for Australian needs, uh, which it isn't at the moment. I mean, if we want Australian gas, we have to compete with export of people who want to import it in the rest of the world. Uh, you, the government could set a price for gas. It doesn't have to be export parity. That's the decision to let the market rule and the consequences that gas prices are completely out of control. Uh, and, of course, with electricity prices, we've had uh, 10 years of real bungling in the transition from coal to renewables, and a huge amount of money uh, has been wasted on uh, fossil fuel subsidies and, and on not preparing the grid for the change. Uh, and so electricity prices are being pushed up and up 
partly because the grid all of a sudden has to be rebuilt because you don't need transmission lines and all like the trail valley to Melbourne anymore. You need them from northwestern Victoria where the sun is or where the wind is. So I mean, the, the, I mean, both these uh, the things are, are a product of of, of, of neglect and and in, the, in in terms of gas, a decision to um, uh, let the market rule. And it doesn't have to be that way. Yeah, There was an article recently, in fact, that the regulator here in Victoria has been allowing the generators to rip off at a great rate and make profits way over and above um, what should be you know, even reasonable if we consider any profit reasonable, I suppose. Um, but surely, therefore, the starting point should be cutting out rorts. Well, I mean, this, is, this has been one of the, the big issues uh, that we've seen where the, um, the, um, the price of, of, um, of electricity on the wholesale market, um, which then, of course, the, determines the, the amount that uh, the people who supply it to us, the retailers, uh, uh, charge, uh, is, is based on, on the supply and demand of electricity uh, you know, every hour, every day. And, you know, we saw in the last year the coal-fired generators, uh, when there's a bit of a shortage of electricity, suddenly turning off generators, oh, sorry, it's broken down, and, 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 and shorting the supply and driving the price up to ridiculous levels where, you know, the government actually had to try and put a cap on it, which we all then paid for. So, I mean, the electricity market is a rort. Uh, mm. And I think, I mean, that may be one of the reasons why we see these very tentative steps in Victoria with the announcement from the Victorian government of um, getting the old SCCV, for us oldies who remember, the State Electricity Commission of Victoria, which in our youth used to own the generators and the poles and the retailers. So uh, uh, it was all government-owned and, and regulated to, to, to get the SECV up and going again uh, and, and, and for the government, in, in mainly in association with uh, industry super funds, union-based super funds, to start building large-scale renewable energy because, uh, I mean, as they said, uh, the private uh, energy generation market has failed. And indeed, Jeff Kennett, who of course did that privatisation, says that that would be taking us back to the dark ages. Well, it would be taking us back to the ages when electricity was affordable. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh. People might actually be able to turn on a light, so that kind is, of the yeah. opposite of the dark ages. That would be, be shocking all, wouldn't it? But I mean, I mean, of course, I mean, for the government to get back here, I mean, given we've had this, this you know, 30... Mm. 30-plus years of privatisation of trying to get everything we possibly can, whether it be airlines or utility companies or banks or, or whatever, and turn them over to private capital. Um, um, you know, the, the idea that state government might actually start um, uh, engaging this market again is, is anathema to that ideology, even though this Victorian government has been very happy to even... Uh, you know, have hospitals and schools uh, built by the private sector and rented back to the state, which seems to me like an appalling idea, but that's another story. Mm. Mm. Um, I'm curious. I'm just a bit ignorant on this. Um, so the retailers and the generators are privatised in Australia, but um, does the government still own, like, the infrastructure of the actual grid? No, no. It, oh, doesn't, okay. own, it doesn't own mm. any of it. So, I mean... In, in the old days, these things were all integrated and, and basically owned by state utilities uh, in, you know, in, in each state. Um, and when it was privatised, there was uh, uh, you know, a very difficult problem because it's very hard to separate out 
the generators, uh, those who are producing the power from uh, those big transmission lines that take us take us from the Trove Valley to our front door, mm-hmm. and then the retail process where where we have a, a meter and somebody charges us. So there's this artificial division of, of mm-hmm. what really should be an integrated industry into three bits: generation distribution and retail, and then they tried to, to some extent, set up competition uh, between uh, the, the, the newly privatised parts of, of the electricity system, um, but you can't do it with the grid. Yeah, because, it's like a natural... <laughs> it's a natural monopoly. It's like a, a road or a footpath. You're not going to build two or three of them and have people competing as to which road you drive along. And nor can you compete for which which part of the grid your power will come down. So then there was an attempt to regulate that. But um, uh, the the distribution system, uh, because it's, it's a narrow private monopoly, really could say, we spent this amount of money, you've guaranteed us a profit, therefore, you know, our charge will be this. Mm. And the, what happened was was a lot of unnecessary or poorly conceived um, uh, grid construction, which was called gold plating the grid, where money was spent that didn't have to be, with money spent in the wrong way. Uh, and so we've paid uh, excessive um, um, charges for the distribution section because of that. So... I mean, this, as Kevin says, all comes back to Jeff Kennett's mania in, in privatising what mm. was a natural state monopoly. I mean, the same thing would happen if you tried to privatise the post office. I've been trying to do that, and have three or four, and have three or four postal companies mm. trying to, you know, compete as to who's going to put the letter in your letterbox. I mean, this this was madness, and and so it's turned out to be. But part of it also, the, going back to Jeff Kennett, he did retain an SEC, but its sole role is to subsidise electricity for Alcoa down at Portland, where you're also yeah. running the wires from one side of the state to the other, which is not all that efficient, I would have thought. No, well, that, I mean, you're absolutely right. The official State Electricity Commission of Victoria still exists as a legal government institution, uh, which is why it's easy for the state government to now use it for another purpose, because it still exists. And and it, it was to, I mean, way back, I think, 30-odd years ago, which is the Hamer government, uh, attracted Alcoa um, to, to, to... I think, it was, I think it was Bolte, actually. Bolte, sorry, uh, to, uh, to, to Western Victoria by promising large-scale subsidies. And, and uh, that is still the case. I mean, they're, they're slowly being ground down because um, the Alcoa plant uh, there, uh, like the one near Geelong, is no longer efficient by modern standards and, you know, it's like the alcohol will close it. But, I mean, essentially a large brown coal industry uh, was partly developed in the Latrobe Valley in order for the government to subsidise that power to go to a generator in, in Western Victoria. Yeah, it's quite ridiculous, isn't it? But the last night's budget, by the way, um, was there anything at all there positive in terms of the environment? Do you know? Have you had a look? Oh, well, look, you know, um, uh, to, me, to me, it looked like a really small-scale, you know, a small-scale effort, to, to be honest. Um, I mean, Stan Grant, who I generally don't agree with, had a good piece in the Asia in, on the ABC this morning saying that when you have inflation, it's poor people who get poorer. 
because mm-hmm. uh, because prices go up, everything goes up, and they don't have any assets like houses or whatever that, that, that go up in value as well. And it's really clear. I mean, this, this idea that gas and electricity prices will go up 50% in the last 18 months, I mean, I think they went up, you know, I looked at my bill about 30%, per, 30% this year already. Um, 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 yet, yet uh, the budget papers admitted that wages will not will not be keep up with inflation for another two years. So people have already had a big hit um, to to their back pocket. Um, people you know, who, who who don't have assets that accumulate in value. Um, so inflation six, seven, eight percent. You know, wages have been one or two percent. So you know, the average wage earner has probably gone back four or five percent the last year. Their their wages were four or five percent less than it was a year ago, mm-hmm. and we're going to have a, another maybe 18 months of wages falling further behind prices. Uh, and, you know, the obvious the obvious thing is, is given what the Australian Council of Social Services is saying about the number of people in poverty, obviously the, the rent stress, uh, people going without meals and so on, is, is to increase the social security base for the the poorest and, and most vulnerable in this society, um, um, whether that's energy prices, whether that's rent or whether that's food. Uh, but it seems to me that there was nothing in the budget for that. There was $800 million for, for more renewables, um, which is good. Uh, but, I mean, it, it strikes me as, as, as a, a budget that's, that's really exacerbated inequity in this country or not dealt with inequity. Mm-hmm. Or even more frightening, even extract some of those massive profits that the corporations are making and put it into the pockets of the workers. Well, this, I mean, this, I mean, this is the issue coming back to the, to the, you know, the uh, Australia's gas and, and coal exports. That compared to stands in the rest of the world, um, uh, uh, federal governments charge a, a fraction in the way of royalties and taxes uh, com- compared to other large gas uh, producers. So, I mean, there's something, you know, there's an obvious opportunity there that, that, that's not being fulfilled. Uh, but, I mean, I guess, I guess you know, the bigger picture coming back to Ukraine is that, um, I mean, if you look at world politics today, it's dominated by, in a, in a, you know, in a bourgeois, massive media sense, it's dominated by the war in Ukraine, by... Cost of living pressures, which is a cliche, but also <laughs> very real. Uh, and underlying this is you know, large-scale disruption to supply chains caused by COVID, caused by uh, the disruption of the energy system in in Europe, and so on. And together with this sort of re- return to a, a, a more nationalist, xenophobic politics um, in, in, in many places in the world. Um, um, and that's all the opposite of what you need if you're going to have global cooperation on climate. So it just it just mm, feels to yeah. me that, that climate is not up there as the compelling issue it was. Even a couple of years ago, you know, when sort of Greta was really a story and so on, it just feels to me that climate's falling down the, the agenda pretty badly at the moment. Yeah, and... Um in terms of the Ukraine war, as well as gas companies making these windfall profits, um, uh, what have you seen in terms of governments, especially in Europe, sort of using that as an excuse to continue fossil fuel exploration and um, kind of keep that going longer than they they might have done? Um, if, yeah. Yeah, look, I think there's a bit of a, a, a mixed story there because mm. obviously 
um, Europe was was highly dependent on on Russia, particularly for gas. Um, there's just like a gas highway from from Russia to to Western Europe, and um, they realised that Putin realised that that's a, a weapon he could use, probably not as successfully as he would have hoped. So, with Russia sort of stifling the gas supplies, and that's really trying to put pressure on Europe to not support the war, just to make it so painful at home that people don't, you know, the political support for the war will, will end. But I don't think there's much sign of that at the moment, is that Europe's had two responses. Um, um, and, and one has been good. They've had to talk about using less energy, mm-hmm. which has been fantastic, you know. And, and so in some European countries, they've they suddenly discovered that uh, heat pumps, what we call air conditioners, hot water heat pumps, I mean, the most efficient uh, uh, a form of, of, of generating heat and cold and hot water uh, are suddenly on the agenda. Um, European companies are trying to wind up their non-fossil fuel uh, uh, energy transition. Uh, they're trying to use less, less energy. So, I mean, I think that's all really good that it's really put a, a bit of a bomb under Europe to 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 put resources into into becoming less dependent on gas and and um, and getting more towards renewables. Uh, but on the other hand. There's a sort of a short-term desperation, um, and so without the gas to, to run some gas-fired generators, they've had to revert to using more coal, and, and, and you know, and, and I think even in is it in, in Germany uh, they've talked to even the Greens have supported keeping some nuclear power stations open uh, for a bit longer to, to try and deal with the shortfall. Now, nukes are not fossil fuels, but they have their own issues. So, I mean, I think, I mean, I think overall. There may be some good for Europe out, okay. out of this. I hope. Yeah, one commentator did make that point that it might speed up the end of fossils in Europe rather than yep. the, the the bad one. And of course, yep. Greta Thunberg also, unfortunately, came. I think unfortunately, came out and said, "Well, if it's a choice between nuclear and coal, she'd back nuclear," which is a bit of a pity. But yeah. I mean, I, I think the nuclear debate, I mean, it's always been a, a thing that some people like to thump the table over. But, I mean, if you, if you just look at the economics of it, it just doesn't back up in any way. I mean, I don't think there's been a new, a new nuclear power station uh, finished in Europe in the last 20... in, in America in the last 20 years. Uh, they, they classically... Uh, run over cost and, you know, end up costing two or three times what you thought the original price would be. Um, and as they come towards the end of their life, there's now going to be a, a huge uh, hole that will be picked up by governments, which is which is the long-term cost of, of managing uh, the waste and and, uh, and closing down the, um, foster, the, the power plant successfully, which private operators may not have um, uh, accounted for. Uh, I mean, the legacy cost of nuclear power stations will be really high. Mm, absolutely. The... Uh, if, 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 if they're not Chernobyl, which cost them Yeah, that's right. <laughs> just because they're there. Um, David, we finish up with another area, the carbon credits or um, offsets, as they call them. Uh, I noticed one company, an equity company called Blackstone, has recently invested $600 million, um, in credit in, to put up some credit company, uh, carbon credit company, yet at the same time there's been heaps and heaps of exposures that these are all rorts anyway. A lot of them are rorts and they're not really doing anything. Well, I mean, this is this is this this is a rot at both Australian scale and a global and a global scale. I mean, so 
So the curtain's been pulled back to some extent in Australia because of the work by Andrew McIntosh at the Australian Uni National University, who was closely involved in this, uh, what we call, you know, carbon, uh, carbon trading process. I mean, classically in Australia, under the previous government, it was um, you can get money for taking carbon out of the air. So you can get money for planting trees in a particular place, uh, which is problematic because if you get droughts or whatever, the trees die and so this, the scheme doesn't work. And also, I mean, much more dubious has, has been this idea of saying you could cut down these trees, which would reduce the capacity for them to draw down carbon. So if you don't cut them down, we will give you money. Um, um, which is things like money for jam. Um, and, I mean, uh, work was done in, in Australia with uh, some researchers using satellites to, 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 you know, to look at the, at, at the areas where people said they planted trees and claimed these credits, and they found that the trees just didn't exist. Mm. So this, you know, this, this, was, this, this was the big rort uh, that Labor, that this government is trying, now trying to deal with. Um, so, I mean, I think that's a, a good step. I mean, there is a much broader problem at a global level where people talk about net zero rather than 20, uh, rather than real zero uh, emissions, and they're saying, well, you know, I've got an airline and we have to keep on polluting because going to my sister's wedding in Fiji is really important. Um, and, and so airlines are saying, well, we'll offset this by buying credits from somewhere else, and that's when you get this market in, you know, carbon credits. And the credits you buy are often bodgy. I mean, the, the, the savings or the reductions in in, in carbon in the atmosphere somewhere else just um, are often mirages, as has been found out in the Australian case. So the whole idea of carbon trading, I think, is, you know, it's, it's a, mar a market in search of a profit, but mm. maybe not very soundly based. Well, well, Santos and Woodside and the usual suspects, they all say, look, we'll still be using using coal and gas in 2050, but it will, it will be zero emissions because we'll be offsetting it. But that seems to me to defeat the purpose. Well, I mean, I, I, guess, I guess there's two things there. I mean, people like Woodside and the North West Shelf people have all promised carbon capture and storage. That is, that when, they, when they're extracting this gas, that they will capture all the fugitive emissions... Uh, uh, so they don't go in the atmosphere. Uh, but in fact, they haven't done that. They failed even even to to meet their planning uh, uh, and 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 and, and uh, license standards to do it. So they mm. they, they have failed to do what what they promised. Well, the big uh, example was Chevron on Parowara, and they can't get it to work. Yeah, yeah, and I mean that's been the classic story of carbon capture and storage um, uh, uh, everywhere. I mean the other problem with this. Yes, we'll keep on emitting, but we're going to buy the offsets. I mean, somebody had a look, and he said, if you looked at all the big global companies around the world who said that they'd still be emitting in 2050, but they'd be buying offsets, the amount of offsets that they're going to be buying are more than that that could possibly be physically uh, available. OK, look, we're going to have to finish here, David, because time's up. The next the next show's about to come on air. So, look, but look, thanks for that, and we'll talk again, no My doubt, because this will keep going. But thanks for your time, Cheers. David. Thanks, OK, bye. David Spratt there, the author of uh, Climate Change Code Red, and um, that's City Limits next week, Transport. Yep. Um, see you next week for that. Well, thanks, Deb. My name is Todd Fernando. I'm the Victorian Commissioner for LGBTIQ plus communities, and you're listening to 3CR. Hi. 
I'm Sophie from Braemar College, basis of The Tangents. Stay tuned to 3CR Community Radio, supporting young local artists. 855 on your AM dial, digital and online at 3cr.org.au. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.